The Gist is brought to you by Betterment, the largest automated investing service, managing billions of dollars for people just like you. Get up to six months of investing free when you go to betterment.com slash gist. Betterment, investing made better. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, June 7th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We have two presumptive nominees, and between them, one confirmed racist. Okay, uh, maybe not racist. You can't call anyone a racist. It's so strong, it's so harsh to call Donald Trump a racist just because he thinks a judge should be disqualified because of his ethnicity, because of the judge's parents' country of origin. Donald Trump's mother, country of origin, by the way, is Scotland. I'll build a wall, maybe a lock, and the Scots will pay for it. But you can say what you want. This is America, and Donald Trump is the nominee of a major party. He appeals to the aspirations of the downtrodden, those lied to about their chances for advancement, people who are angry at the government. And what better vessel for all these feelings than a judge who might actually rule for victims seeking redress from a fraudulent business which falsely promised them a chance for advancement. Trump? Disqualified as a racist? Nah. The problem for Trump, though, is that Judge Curiel is qualified as a jurist, which is not good for Trump. And to see that, it does not take a lawyer from Trump University. A lawyer with a fancy degree. Seriously, you should see these degrees from Trump University. The paper stock, the calligraphy. It's almost as if they spent their whole endowment right there. So Paul Ryan noted Trump non-non-supporter, said of Trump's comments about the judge. Claiming a person can't do the job because of their race is sort of like the textbook definition of a racist comment. Sort of, kind of, if you look at it, if you squint a little, fucking lowercase a, yes, he's right. And then Ryan went on to say, But do I believe that Hillary Clinton is the answer? No, I do not. Well, if the question is, pick the non-racist, then Hillary Clinton actually is the answer. Elections can be about a lot of things, and political scientists have different ideas, different theories of voting. There's the pocketbook model. There's the affinity group theory, the loss aversion theory. But if you tell me that your method of voting is, I'm going to pick the non-racist, I can't say you're doing it wrong. Paul Ryan disagrees. So maybe you say, all right, Paul Ryan, he's an elected official. He's got a hedge. Ah, but his colleague, Senator Ben Sass, does not. Yesterday, he tweeted public service announcement saying someone can't do a specific job because of his or her race is the literal definition of racism. No kind of sort of in that tweet. I agree with Sass, except there are some, maybe some rare cases where someone really can't do a job because of his race. Like certain races, certain like NWA cover band. I just think some people are disqualified from that, even if they were born in Indiana. In the show today, I spiel about the other presumptive nominee and just how presumptive she is. And a little later, we'll talk to a leading public health expert about smart guns and just how smart they are. But first, the first in our postcards of the post office. You will see what I mean. (laughs) 
what I wanted to do with this book by Devin Leonard called Neither Snow Nor Rain, A History of the United States Postal Service is just take out a couple of the ideas in this, I think, surprisingly fascinating book. I don't know that too many people <laughs> are that captivated by the post office, but I wound up becoming and talk about aspects of the post office and what this tells us even about society. Let's talk about the phrase going postal. If you're young, you might have heard this phrase, but not realize that this refers to shootings, a spate of shootings perpetrated in post offices or by postal workers. And I think that there might be a lesson since, you know, massive uh, gun violence is still is still a common occurrence in American life. So let's talk about going postal with Devin Leonard. When was the first instance where either this phrase came about or where a postal worker was the source of uh, gun violence? Well, Mike, there were individual sort of incidents, uh, I guess, in the 80s. But the one that really focused attention, you, you, you know, on violence in the Postal Service, it was in 1988. There was a letter carrier. To, a, a, he was a substitute letter carrier. And this was in Edmond, Oklahoma. He, he, he went berserk and, and shot, you know, like 14 people. And it, and it turned out – his name was Robert Shirell. It, it turned out that he'd been in the military. I guess he was a trained sort of, sort of marksman. He'd been discharged, I, I believe, uh, under sort of less than than uh, uh, honorable circumstances. Mm-hmm. But the Postal Service didn't really check into his background and didn't really listen to warnings from people. He, you know, he sort of dropped hints that he was getting mad at his supervisors and, and he wanted to get even. But that became sort of a pattern. There were well, a lot that's of incidents the question. like this. Right. Yeah. This could have been like Charles Whitman was a guy who was discharged from the military and shot up the University of Texas. This could have been another incident of workplace violence. Just happened that the post office was the workplace, except – it kept happening right. or at least seemed to. Well, that's the thing. The Postal Service had a veteran's preference. So, I mean, you take a, you take a test to become, you know, a letter carrier or a clerk, but, and, and you get extra points if you're a veteran. So, yeah, this is common in civil service exams. Yeah, yeah. So, so they hired, they hired a, a, a lot of veterans, but they didn't always screen them. And, and, and so, so, you, like, so you had people coming in who were trained to shoot, trained to kill. And, 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 and again, it, you know, it just kept happening and then blew up again in Royal Oak, uh, Michigan in 1991. But there were a bunch. And uh, the St. Petersburg Times coined the term going postal. Well, tell me about that because I think that's really important. It wasn't just a coincidence. It wasn't just a joke by late night comics or a phrase that was tossed off. I think coining the phrase concentrated America's attention. So what did you find out about that phrase and the derivation and etymology thereof? Well, a newspaper coined it, but it just spread, and and it was also it was it was sort of at a time when the postal service's image was kind of changing, uh, you know, for Americans. For the longest time, people really had a lot of respect for for the postal service. And if you see movies like A Miracle, A Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, think about how how the, um, the the clerks in that movie are portrayed. They're sort of yes. these street smart New Yorkers who figure out you know how to prove that you know that's actually Santa Claus. You, 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 yeah. you, you know, on, on trial that, that town. The scene culminate. I mean, the movie climaxes with the postal carriers marching right. in like military personnel, dumping the letters on the judge's desk. Yes, it's a moment of triumph for the no, post no, office. no, no, and as the post office, we certify that yes. you know that is Santa Claus, and you know Santa Claus is a very merry Christmas to you, and 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 that's and that's the end. It's a happy ending. But by the time you get to the eighties, you're starting to see another kind of representation of of the letter case. Cliff Clavin from Cheers, and he's very funny. We, Smart guy. We, we all like him, but he's sure. a little he's a little damaged. He's got a little bit of a, bit of a problem. He's following the rules too much. His case kind of kind of robotic. And so, although it is true that the North American elk, if it could speak, could not, because of the shape of its esophagus, <laughs> could not pronounce the word lasagna. Cliff Clavin taught us that. Yeah, well, 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 well like I said, we know we we love Cliff. Yeah, 
But also, right around this time, pretty soon after, that's when we get Newman. He's on sign, but he's a villain. He's Jerry's arch enemy, and he's always doing things like, you know, there's all these jokes about kind of crazy postmen and postmen taking long breaks and, and stuff like that. So the public and, and the media were sort of reacting to the violence, but it was also, you know, this is also, you know, post-Reagan era when, you know, there, there are portrails of public employees as, yes. uh, I, I guess, you know, casting a bad bad light and on And government them, but, is the problem. Right, exactly, yeah. right. Yeah. You know, the, the whole... Going postal stigma is sort of part and parcel. This is the most per- part and parcel. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> this is the most. This is the most uh, pernicious representation of how bad the post office has supposedly got. But to their credit, they intervened and they put in programs. And now we don't hear about going postal because it doesn't seem to happen. What did they do? Well, because ultimately everybody kind of got together, and it wasn't just the postal service management; it was the postal service unions too, and mm-hmm. and, and, and the supervisors. They signed some declarations saying they weren't going to tolerate violence, but they did this in sort of a very quiet way. But but they essentially sort of created a profile of you know the kind of postal worker who might be likely to lose it on the job. And also, they just paid a lot more attention to people's complaints. They set up a hotline. Yeah. And they, they just did a, a, a lot of you know basic things, and it worked. So. What about the job itself that could you know drive people nuts? I don't want to be glib about this, but no. there is aspects to the job that's brain numbing. And I know at the time, supervisors would say, yeah, it is hard to you know work for eight hours with this one machine without much human interaction. I could see why that might warp a brain. There was a lot of labor and management tension around that time. And, and, and part of it, especially in post offices, was that the post office was trying to, the postal service was really trying to push automation. You know, you know, for years and years, for, you know, for decades, uh, you know, postal clerks just sorted mail just like they did in Ben Franklin's time but by hand. But the mail volume was, had gone up so much and was continuing to go up in the 80s that the postal service just couldn't operate like that anymore. But as, as, as it was moving, you know, these big optical character reader machines and that was, you know, that created all kinds of tension with employees. So, and, 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 and in some cases, some of the unions were kind of uh, pushing that too. But, 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 but I think that created a really tense atmosphere. And, and also, there's a lot of rules and, mm-hmm. and a lot of kind of, kind of uh, dictatory sort of supervisors and stuff. But uh, the Postal Service addressed that too. And, I mean, you know, you still hear complaints about that, but it's, I don't think it's anywhere near as bad as it used to be. Can other businesses, can other institutions in America take a lesson from how the post office reformed to make going postal a phrase from just history? Well, I, I think it's still a phrase. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and everybody hates it. I mean, you know, both. Uh, well, what I mean to say is can other businesses, can other institutions look to what the post office did and reform? So the point that going postal is a phrase, but it's no longer a deadly reality. Well, I just I just think you can't have constant like headbutting and fighting between the workers and, and, and the management. And there's definitely been a history of that at the Postal Service, but I don't think it's as, as, anywhere near as bad as it used to be. And, and, and that's the, the answer because management, I don't think, could just do it by itself. They couldn't just sort of impose this on, on everybody. Well, yeah. I mean, what I g- gleaned from that chapter is it's very hard for the rest of business because so often these workpla- instances of workplace violence is someone is fired, but it's a non-union shop. And also in America today, jobs come and go. And so people right. feel untethered, whereas the post office, in a way, though it had these bad things like this mind-numbing rote tasks <laughs> and this acceptance of veterans, it also had unions. It also kind of is a closed ecosystem. Right. It also had a pride in itself. They knew the brand meant something. So, you know, I don't know how applicable it is to any other business that one day some guy w- walks into an auto parts plant and shoots it up. It doesn't have the same things going for it that the post office did. 
Yeah. People who go to work at the post office, they work there forever. I mean, I mean, the quit ratio is very, very low. So, so ultimately, I think, you know, to your point, you know, everybody sort of had to get along that you couldn't just get rid of these people. And there's, there's instances in the book of uh, postal workers who, who did kind of go berserk. The Postal Service tried to get rid of them, but it, but it just couldn't. So the only thing you could do really was everybody had to get together and just, you know, stop this stuff. Neither Snow Nor Rain, A History of the United States Postal Service, written by Devin Leonard. He joined us for this little postcard about going postal. Thank you, Devin. Sure. I used to have a to-do list, but I really should have just renamed it my taxes and investment list. Because on the, f- the first two things for six, seven years on my to-do list were taxes. You always have to do your taxes and investments. And I delayed and I dragged my feet. And I think what was preventing me from really jumping in with uh, two arms was the fact that there was no great technology. I mean, taxes are still a nightmare in terms of that. The IRS tax forms are like written on papyrus practically. But investing, you know, we do so many things online. We do so many things through apps. And yet when it comes to investing and managing one's own money, I don't know, it seems like the idea is we got to go out and find the guy and hope the guy is not balding or is balding just the right amount to give you confidence but not make you question his worth. These are how people I know. These are how people deal with the bald. But now there's a better way. In fact, this better way is called Betterment. Betterment is the largest independent automated investing service. It's managing more than $4 billion for 150,000 customers. The financial services industry has embraced technology and innovation through the creation of automated investing. But it still means that smart people are looking out for you and looking out for your money. It's not just a computer. And you could just check this all out yourself. And I encourage you to by going to betterment.com slash gist. And you could get up to six months of no fees at Betterment. And that is at betterment.com slash gist. Betterment, investing made better. A case that could be decided any day by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit in California could have big implications for handguns. This case isn't technically about smart guns. That phrase refers to recent technology, RFID codes and so forth. It's about technology that was invented 100 years ago. But Second Amendment activists are claiming that any restriction on guns in the name of safety is an infringement of their right to own guns. Meanwhile, in the state of New Jersey, they're in the process of redrafting a law which was enacted over a decade ago. And this law was interpreted as saying that once smart guns are available, only smart guns could be sold in the states. The very presence of that state law has chilled companies from developing smart guns. Well, joining me now happens to be a guy who's authoring, helping New Jersey rewrite that act. He's Stephen Terrett, a professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at Johns Hopkins. Hello, Professor Terrett. Hello, how are you? I'm well. Can you give us in a nutshell what the uh, California court, the Ninth Circuit, is deciding? Yes, actually, the Ninth Circuit case doesn't deal with smart guns per se. The Ninth Circuit case is resolving the question of the constitutionality of some laws passed years ago in California that require guns to have certain safety devices on them. These are devices in particular that are to lessen the chance that a young child would be able to operate the gun. Now, while those do make a gun safer, 
they're not by definition what a smart gun is. A smart gun by definition is a gun which at the time of its manufacturer is designed and made so that it discriminates between authorized users and unauthorized users so that it will fire only for authorized users. So therefore, a smart gun doesn't only prevent a very young child from picking up the gun and firing it. It would prevent a depressed teenager from doing so. It would prevent someone who has stolen a gun from a home, which happens about a quarter of a million to half a million times a year in the United States from firing it. So again, while that case may have some bearing in the future on the validity of smart gun laws, if such laws are passed, the case is not about smart guns per se. Right. To be clear, the technology that they're deciding in the Ninth Circuit was invented a century ago, and it includes things like uh, guns that won't fire a bullet if it's left in the chamber or that will indicate when a bullet is in the chamber. I kind of can't believe that this is controversial or a case, although we should say that a lower court essentially agreed with me and said, why is this even a case? And perhaps the Ninth Circuit will say, well, of course, this can go forward. But what does it say that there is a debate or a possibility that this technology to just indicate a bullet in the chamber that this is before court? Well, guns are an unusual consumer product in the United States. With other consumer products, there seems to be general agreement of, sure, let's make it as safe a consumer product as is technologically feasible. Now, that's not universally true. There have been some products where people have objected to safety advances. For instance, when we were trying to get airbags in cars, there were people who objected to that. But the objections aren't as fierce and vociferous with other products as they are with guns. There are people who look at guns as something more than just a gun, and they don't want any regulations or any laws that determine how a gun would be manufactured, how the gun would be distributed, who could buy the gun. Now, those are a minority of people in the United States, but they're a very vocal minority of people, and they pursue their ideals vigorously, such as bringing lawsuits like the one that's now before the Ninth Circuit. Well, I think that some of them might say, well, what we want is a gun that when you pick it up, we know with reasonable certainty that it will work, reliably work, because we might have to use it in a moment for self-defense. And they criticize some smart gun technology. And perhaps it was the case that some smart gun technology didn't work that well. But what is the state of the the literal smart gun, which is with the that knows its user? What is the state of that technology today? There are not smart guns on the market today, with maybe some very few exceptions. The technology, though, is here now. It exists. It's not a future technology. The technology is ready to be put into smart guns. What has kept smart guns off of the market in recent times is not a technological hurdle, but it's a political and social and economic set of hurdles. Are they in other countries? No. There is a company that's called Armitex that uh, the parent company is located in Germany. And I'm told by the people who run Armitex that they have sold some guns in Western Europe and in Asia, but not on a large scale. Uh, They were manufacturing their guns, particularly with an eye for the United States market. And those guns have not yet been sold in the U.S.
why not in Germany when there are no uh, legal hurdles and not this culture, this uh, there's no Second Amendment, quite literally? Why haven't they been sold in Europe where they could be sold? Well, actually, the laws in Europe are more restrictive than the laws in the United States with regard to the sale and purchase of guns. The market for gun makers, and this is not true just for Armitex, but historically, like uh, the Glock gun that was manufactured in Austria, didn't really take off in its sales until the sales came to the United States. That's the market that gun makers are looking at. Most gun deaths in the United States are suicides. You mentioned the teenager who grabs his father's gun, but I don't have the statistics. Perhaps you do. It would seem that a vast number of suicides are by gun are by the gun owner. Most murder is intentional um, by someone who either owns legally or illegally the gun. How much will smart guns cut down on gun deaths in the United States? Sure, we can argue that if it even saves a dozen toddlers, it's worth it. But do you have any idea about what the gun death numbers will look like if smart guns are widely introduced and adopted? Well, that's a critically important question, and unfortunately, there's not a good answer that I can give you or anyone else can give you, the reason being that we haven't run the experiment yet to see what happens when we start replacing traditional guns with smart guns. What I can tell you is it won't be the elimination of all gun deaths. But that's no reason why we shouldn't try to reduce some of the gun deaths. It's like with antibiotics. Antibiotics don't solve all medical problems. They're not going to cure cancer. But we certainly wouldn't want to throw away antibiotics for the great benefit that provides society with infectious disease. The same will be true with regard to smart guns. Well, it's funny that you mentioned cancer because I was thinking of another analogy, which is vaping and smoking. And people who favor e-cigarettes talk about it as an amelioration. Um, There are still negative effects, but if you compare it to smoking cigarettes, it's better. Then there are others in that community who say, no, it's just allowing for either a gateway or um, an activity that is still harmful. And what you need is eradication, not amelioration. Similar debate is happening around guns. And there are some anti-gun activists who don't like smart guns because they think it fosters a culture of gun ownership in America. What do you say to them? The people who are within what's generally thought of as the gun violence prevention community who do not like smart guns are extraordinarily few in number. The Supreme Court of the United States has told us that individuals have a right to keep and bear arms, including handguns. We are not going to craft a solution that eliminates guns in the United States. So instead, what we need to do is look at the deaths. For the most recent year, for which the Centers for Disease Control has released data, which is the year of 2014, there were 33,599 Americans killed in front of the barrel of a gun. That's shameful. We need to bring that number down, and we need to do that in any way we can, including the use of technology. Stephen Terrett, professor in the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, where he co-directs the Center for Law and the Public's Health. Thank you very much, Professor. Well, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. I enjoyed it.
And now the spiel, presumption junction. Hillary has clinched a glorious moment. The balloons, the confetti, the hugs from her supporters, the phone call that the AP made to a superdelegate sometime yesterday. Well, that's what put her over the top. Maybe it wasn't even a phone call. Maybe it was a Snapchat, an ephemeral medium for a retractable pledge. The superdelegates who recently changed their mind, maybe it was Nancy Worley of Alabama. Could have been Michael Brown of D.C. You heard of them, right? No, of course you haven't. Because super de- you know how superdelegates work? They're supposed to hide their actual identities and just go out there and fight injustice as democracy man and vote girl. At least hope when the AP called to confirm the superdelegate who put Hillary Clinton over the top that one of them, the reporter or the delegate, was actually in a smoke-filled room just for old time's sake. I don't know. I'm thinking maybe Howard Dean after New Hampshire should have done his whole, we're going to New Hampshire and we're going to South Carolina and we're going to Nancy Worley and we're going to Michael Brown. I, for the record, want to note that I think the AP is doing its job, doing it well. They're adding to the sum of human knowledge. We found out yesterday how these people are voting. We put it in context for the reader and we conclude that she literally can't be beat. Good job, AP. That said... This way of announcing she's going to be your nominee, it is confusing and bad for voters. It is bad for democracy. It's bad for the process. It's bad for Bernie. And it's also bad for Hillary Clinton. Her supporters are definitely less impassioned than Bernie's. They're more likely to stay home during tonight's California primary. I'm thinking maybe Bernie supporters don't even know that he's not the presumptive nominee. I mean, they they all live in their own edges of Twitter and the Bernieverse, where they share with you their own math and screenshots of calculators that prove Hillary Clinton can't possibly clinch, even though she can, even though she just might. It's pretty hard to explain. MSNBC's Chris Hayes last night was put in the difficult position of having to announce Hillary's historic clinching with more footnotes than a David Foster Wallace novel. And I want to explain... Uh why this call is being made at this moment as we're standing, sitting here on the eve of the penultimate day of voting in the Democratic primary. There are, of course, in the Democratic Party, two kinds of delegates. There are pledged delegates that are earned through votes in primaries and caucuses, state by state by state. Those are awarded proportionally. And there, then there are those so-called superdelegates. Those are party leaders, party-elected, influential members of the party, about 15% of the total delegates. And they can vote for whoever they want. We know that Hillary Clinton started with a 400 uh, superdelegate padded lead. Let me skip a little bit. Chris went on to say that Clinton's superdelegate plus pledge delegate total puts her at 2383. But maybe this weird calculation will soon become a little clearer. And tomorrow we expect she will clinch the lead in pledge delegates. Okay, lots of math, kind of steps on a historic moment. It's as if Russ Hodges announced the Giants win the pennant. The Giants, well, based on the trajectory of Bobby Thompson's ball and the unlikelihood of a sudden gust of wind or a Superman-esque reversal of the planet, we can safely assume that the men on base are going to come around to score and we could say, the Giants win the pennant. Now, of course, Sanders supporters say there were signals being sent from center field, but you know, conspiracy theorists. Not an hour after the AP and NBC called the race for Clinton, Sanders campaign spokesman Michael Briggs was on MSNBC offering his reasons for why presumptive was presumptuous. Like said, as a, as a rush to judgment, uh, it counts superdelegates that the Democratic National Committee itself says should not be counted because they haven't voted. They won't vote until, until the summer, and uh, they have in the past, and they can change their minds. And uh, our job between now and uh, the convention in Philadelphia is to make the case to these uh, superdelegates that it's in their self-interest, in the Democratic Party's self-interest, if they want to have the 
candidate who has the best chance of defeating Donald Trump this November to take another hard look at, uh, at Bernie Sanders. Well, first of all, even the pledge delegates can change their mind. They're pledged. They're not bound. Until the gavel hits at the convention, it can all change. But as to the point of Bernie having the best chance of beating Trump, yeah, that may be true. But it should be noted that Hillary Clinton also has a truly excellent chance of beating Donald Trump. She hasn't trailed in any poll taken within the last three weeks. She leads by five points in the one poll since Trump started in on his Mexican judge. So maybe Bernie would beat Trump by even more than Hillary would beat Trump. Poll arguments are dumb, but that is the argument that Bernie supporters are making. And not just national poll arguments. Briggs talked about California polls. Uh, One of the polls from the Los Angeles Times had Bernie actually ahead by by a point. Which seems like it could matter that Bernie could win California if the votes of states counted. But in the proportional system, states don't count, delegates count. And tomorrow, Hillary Clinton might very well have enough pledge delegates to clinch the nomination, regardless of whether she wins California. No such thing as winning California. Okay. Regardless of whether she gets more votes than Bernie Sanders in California. Oh, and in New Jersey, she's leading by 20 in the polls. For those of you scoring at home, this means that Bernie Sanders, populist, liberal, his path to the nomination rests on endorsing the institution of the superdelegate and hoping that the superdelegates all change their minds en masse sometime between now and the convention. Relying on elite, semi-anonymous poobahs within a party that Sanders didn't even belong to two years ago, that does not seem at all hypocritical or even out of character to Sanders supporters. Sanders and his supporters are frequently making process arguments. They're making them with fervor. They would say, well, it's because the arguments have merit. I question that. Let me quote the great Dave Hopkins, who is a Boston College political science professor. He has a blog called Honest Graft. You ready? Here's what he says. Liberals are particularly susceptible to process arguments for two reasons. First, liberal concerns about social equity more generally make it easy for left-leaning critics to accuse any disliked procedural attribute of being unfair and therefore unacceptable. Second, liberals tend to view themselves as self-evidently standing for the rights and interests of the people against the elite. Any political battle in which the left, meaning Sanders in this case, suffers defeat, is easy to dismiss as the product of an undemocratic process rather than revealing the limits of liberalism's, or in this case socialism's, popular appeal. Therefore, this is me talking, not Hopkins anymore, therefore it's ipso facto an injustice, a dishonesty, possibly a crime if their candidate were to lose. Something to think about or not, as your head spins from talk of superdelegates, phone interviews, contested conventions, and the presumption of a rigged system in anointing the presumptive nominee. And that's it for today's show. Gist producer is sort of kind of the textbook definition of producer insofar as she produces the gist. Steve Lichtai is a mammal, yet he lays eggs and has a duck bill thereby fitting not only the description of executive producer of Slate Podcast, but also kind of the textbook definition of platypus. 
Andy Bowers not only embodies the textbook definition of chief content officer of the Panoply Network, but he literally wrote that definition and is producing a 12-part podcast about that textbook. The gist, kind of sort of the textbook definition of textbook definitions if the textbook were written by the Texas Board of Education. Umpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.